Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. We have with us today, Brian Gaffney. I know Brian for many years, having worked with him. Brian is the retired CEO and U.S. Managing Director with Allianz Global Investors. Uh, Brian and I started working together in in the late 2011 or so. Uh, And to give you a sense of what Brian was able to do, he was facing a loss uh, and the organization was facing a loss of about $30 million in 2012. And his goal was to reorganize and turn that around. And again, to give you a sense of the success that Brian had, uh, one year later, they uh, made a profit of $40 million. Uh, the next year, it was a profit of $92 million. The year after that, it was a profit of $113 million. And when he retired in 2015, the business was on track for $140 million. So there are some things to learn from Brian. How do you turn around an organization that's losing $30 million a year to one that's making $140 million a year? And and again, as I said, Brian and I have worked together. I know him well. He is um, every bit a good person as he is a successful person. So, you know, he, he achieves these um, uh, results with deep integrity and passion and vision and, and you know, all things that that we look for in leaders and we look to emulate in leaders. So without further ado, Brian Gaffney, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Hello, Peter. Thank you. That's a terrific introduction. Thank you. I appreciate that. So Brian, let's let's go back to 2012 and or maybe even a little before 2012. And you're you know you're facing an organization that's losing money, a tremendous amount of money, and you're in the CEO role here to turn it around. What are you facing? What are you looking at? What what scares you or disrupts you? And what do you do to begin to shift the organization forward? Well, maybe, Peter, I'll take a half step back. When I joined in 2008, I was brought in to run the distribution company. I was CEO of the U.S., running third-party distribution for the multi-affiliate structure, PIMCO, Nicholas Applegate, RCM Capital, Oppenheimer. These were all companies that that really uh, comprised the Allianz Asset Management, also including PIMCO, uh, in the United States. And that had been built over the years through a series of acquisitions. And one of the selling points was, uh, we'll acquire you, and we'll, there'll be some benefits of scale, but we really want you to continue to do things the way that you've always done them when you were independent. Uh, so these were, were really quite independent companies. The distribution business went very well, but in 2012, uh, we launched a project called uh, Project Decade. At the same time, I was appointed CEO for the United States, so it was beyond distribution. It was CEO for all the business functions for all of the multi-affiliates. And, and frankly, when I looked at it, Peter, it was one of the most daunting challenges I, I had uh, seen. I was quite comfortable in the distribution company, but because of the multi-affiliate structure uh, and because of the autonomy, it, it was the idea of trying to pull together such disparate businesses. And yes, we're all in the same industry, but the cultures in all of these organizations had, had been formed over many years, 
and, and were really quite different. And in some cases, senior leaders of these organizations had never met each other. Uh, so Brian, let me old. pause. Let me pause just to um, just for listeners who don't really know what it means to what distribution means, you know, versus the broader CEO role that you took on. Can you, in a sentence or two, just describe that so people who aren't in finance and 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 don't understand can get a grasp of it? Sure. Allianz products need to find their way onto platforms such as 401k platforms, the Merrill Lynch system, uh, independent financial advisors. And that's done through a sales organization. And my job job was to lead the sales and marketing effort that allowed Allianz products to make their way onto those platforms and, and then be sold to end consumers. And examples of products would be, you know, asset uh, portfolio managers and, and um, funds that... Mutual funds. Mutual funds. Great. And so when you stepped into the larger role, what was, what was that increase? So right now you're, you're, you know, in 2008, you're running a sales organization to get the mutual funds into, uh, you know, 401k plans and into larger finance, retail-based financial organizations. Um, what's the, what, what does the step up rep- represent? In each of the, uh, the, the independent companies, they had their own institutional sales force. And as you might imagine, if you're a small company, when you talk to institutional buyers, you're, you're only able to bring those products that are affiliated with your company. So the challenge was to create an institutional sales organization that could bring all of the solutions to a conversation instead of the, uh, the, small, uh, the smaller solution from one company. That was part of it, but there was also infrastructure. Uh, every one of these companies had their own legal, compliance, IT support, all the things that went along, along with operating an independent uh, asset management business. That created tremendous complexity and tremendous uh, regulatory challenges. Uh, and the biggest thing that it impeded was the ability of us to bring products that were manufactured by Allianz and other parts of the world into the United States and vice versa. This complexity uh, would not allow us to take products manufactured in the United States and get them uh, distributed in other parts of the world. And, and therefore, Project Decade was launched. Got it. So you're basically faced with having the, you know, multiple disparate businesses, in effect, run by multiple disparate people with multiple disparate objectives and goals and personalities. And you need to integrate them in such a way that they're working together effectively so that you can then bring them as a holistic offering to spread the sales, you know, more broadly across the U.S., Correct. And I think it leads to the natural question, why would these independent companies want to agree to become part of one company? They like their independence. Well, the challenge was they were each running their own separate P&L. And it really forced them to make uh, very difficult decisions because of scale or lack of scale. If we could combine all that into one P&L, we could make longer-term strategic decisions for each of their operating entities, and they wouldn't be stuck with having to, to navigate the ups and down cycles of, of an investment management company with very specific mandates. It would give it a broader opportunity to participate in a bigger P&L and longer-term strategic discussions. So it's like you've stepped into an organization that has done, in effect, you know, conceptually, 
a tremendous amount of M&A and never integrated any of the companies. And everybody likes operating independently and everybody likes their freedom and maybe they've been bought out in effect, but nothing's really changed for them except maybe a little safety. And so they like it that way. And you're coming in and you're basically saying in order to make this thing run effectively, I've got to get people to play together and work together and to sort of roll up what they're doing in such a way that we could have uh, economies of scale and a market strategy that looks much more unified than we currently look. Yeah, that's correct. And, uh, you know, it was interesting that people were cooperative and, and supported this effort and really did understand that this could lead to broader distribution in other parts of the world uh, and, and obviously accepted the fact that that would require change. And change was always acceptable on the surface. It was until you had to touch their particular operating entity that you you caused a lot of friction. And that, that was the challenge that really had to be overcome. Uh, mentally, people were in the place that they thought change was appropriate, but when you tried to touch their organization, uh, there was uh, there was quite a bit of resistance. And th- so the challenge was, how do we really get people to understand everybody has to uh, accept that some change will affect their organization and, and to be willing to support that with the eventual goal of being able to create lift for the organization and, and eliminate drag uh, that was embedded in the organization just because of the autonomy. Great. So how did you do it? <laughs> uh, as I said, it was, it was quite daunting, and I was given some guidance by Dr. Joachim Faber, who actually built the asset management business early in 2011. I didn't know that I was going to be appointed to the CEO position, but he encouraged me to really make my way around to all the separate affiliates and make sure I had good and growing relationships with all the key members of those companies. So uh, I got on the planes and I made the trips and I made sure to get to know everybody. And, uh, and then when I was uh, appointed CEO, I understood why he did that. So I had built up, uh, some relationships that, uh, that really made the going in, in the beginning a little easier than it had. I just stayed focused on the distribution company. So it was, that was terrific guidance. The next thing we did is one appointment was made very quickly after I was appointed CEO and it was from a retiring uh, general legal counsel who appointed who would be next in charge of legal. And uh, really, thanks to some guidance from you, Peter, that night that that appointment took place, I sent out a memo, there would be no more appointments. Uh, what it took to be successful in your operating affiliate may not be the same traits that are going to be required to build this bigger one organization. And that to find those people, we were going to have an interview process, we were going to have a committee. And we were going to use some of the same things that had been uh, had been expressed globally, and we had expressed it loudly in the distribution company, that we wanted core values of respect, integrity, passion, and excellence. And you were going to be interviewed on that basis, and we were going to gauge your ability to be collaborative and cooperative. So there were nine functional head positions that had to be filled. There were people that had the natural talent or either guided an organization that was large enough that would tend to indicate that they probably should get that post. Uh, But as you got into the interview process, because of the different cultures, there were people that were just not geared up to try to build a collaborative and a cooperative environment. And so we didn't necessarily get the most talented people, but the view was if there's a talent gap, we can close that. But if we have a cultural gap, uh, that's not something that's easily changed or, or easily, uh, you know, you can't really direct that. So we leaned very heavy, heavily on finding the leaders that we thought could collaborate and be cooperative 
uh, and that that would ultimately make its way through the organization and create the lift that was required. And that turned out to be uh, one of the most important moves that happened was to eliminate that appointment structure and to take control of what the culture needed to be for the new one organization and to make sure the right people get into the key positions for those uh, for those roles. You know, it's an amazing signal to send to the organization when you're willing to say what you've said, which is, I'm willing to take someone with less capability if they exhibit the values because we could develop capability, but it's much harder to develop values. And it takes a leap of faith on your part to do that. And it sends a message to the organization about how important the values are, that even the people who are already there realize, wow, this is being taken very seriously, as opposed to what happens in a lot of organizations, which in order to know the values, you have to pull out the sheet and look at them to figure out what they are. I think a side benefit to it is it made people that were either uh, potential leaders or thought they were potential leaders uh, stop and think a little bit more clearly about where we're going next and not necessarily try to think about how you've been doing what you're doing and you just need to do it a little bit better in the new organization. If you wanted to interview for one of these positions, you automatically had to think different, think differently before you even got into the uh, sort of the interview process, if that makes any sense to you. Okay, so now you've established this and you've sent a clear signal to the organization that the values are going to be the most important, how we work together is going to be critical. Uh, what happened then? Next, we formed an executive committee, and this was probably the second biggest challenge, but maybe it was the biggest challenge because I was the CEO over the business functions, but I was not the CEO over the investment functions. Uh, the investment professionals and all of these affiliates reported to uh, chief investment officer that was located in London. So, uh, But I needed to bring them to the table because it was critical to get their support. And when I sat at a table in San Diego and I sat at the head of the table, uh, my knees were literally, literally knocking under the table to try to figure out how do I get some of these people. And you have to understand that there's a natural tension between sales and investment professionals. The investment professionals never really quite think that sales and marketing do enough for them. And sales and marketing are, are always challenged to get products that perhaps haven't hit the threshold of performance that make them highly saleable. So I found that tension in every organization I've ever been in, so it wasn't unique to, uh, to this particular challenge. But to try to get cooperation to move this into a one company with, with lift instead of drag, there had to be some method to try to break down some of those natural tendencies. In other cases, we had competing entities at the table. If we were going to build a new product, there was always a discussion about which one of these operating entities should lead that effort and should, should own that product. So in some cases, we had people that didn't like each other at the table. So I would say that our first few meetings, Peter, were, were really quite miserable and, and really functioned quite poorly. Uh, we used the function, I think, partially to avoid controversy, which is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And so we, we used it as a reporting function. And uh, after sitting in two days of reports, you could see people had their iPads out, uh, investors were investing, and there was absolutely zero collaboration that was taking place under that structure. And fortunately, you and I talked a lot about that, and that you helped me formulate the type of a meeting structure that would promote a real engaged dialogue. And that made a very significant change. So we followed your instructions. We said, look, keep the iPads at home, turn them off. Uh, more importantly, think about leaving the cap of, of what business you operate at the door 
because you're really in this meeting to help think about how we take the greater organization forward. And the most important thing is we're going to circulate a series of questions, and you might be surprised at the questions because they're going to be sort of the undiscussables. They're the things that are really important to move the organization forward, uh, but we never really talk about them because they're painful. They're uncomfortable to talk about. That's what we're going to do in these meetings, and you're all smart enough to, to read the reports. We'll post those on a site. You can read them. We hope you would before the meetings, and if you have questions, bring them to the meeting. But the meeting is to discuss the very, very tough subjects that have to be dealt with if we're really going to take the organization to, to a better place. How, how did you, I'm curious what was going on for you emotionally around that too, because it's a, you know, you're, you're suggesting that they go places that they're all trying to avoid to go and you're kind of on the line for it. And I'm curious whether you felt that pressure, whether you were, you know, scared or concerned or anxious or whether you felt like it was the right thing and you knew what you were doing. Like what's the, where were you in, in this? Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was exactly confident. Uh, I was somewhat excited uh, because it did become clear as, as we thought through this exercise that these were the smartest people in the organization sitting at this table. And that if we could get them engaged, uh, we really could get something out of this that could be very valuable for the greater organization simply because of the high quality of the people that were in that room. But what made me nervous was I capable as a leader to bring about that kind of dialogue. And I was very uncomfortable with that because I'd never done it before in my career. Uh, and, and what I think was happening inside was people were embracing this idea because they were thinking about their own pet peeves that they were finally going to get on the table. Uh, not so much about how they might collaborate and cooperate, but I can finally talk about, you know, the crummy sales organization, and what we need to do to make that better. And the salespeople are thinking, oh, good, we're finally going to talk about the poor performance and, and why we can't sell. And we'd like to know what you're going to do about it. So I think people came to the table thinking, I'm going to knock some things off my list that, I, that have really been bugging me. Uh, and not necessarily thinking about, uh, this is really a great dynamic, and I'm a participant, and, and I'm going to really contribute in a positive, constructive way to this. I don't think people really brought that mindset to the table. So how did you shift it? Uh, I'm not so sure that I shifted it. The dynamic that, that I hadn't expected is that when you put the tough subject on the table, uh, it, it didn't really concern everybody at the table. But when somebody was on the hot seat, there was a certain degree of empathy that started to emerge. And people would feel, and they would also hear misunderstandings. As the facts were placed on the table, people may have had a view, and when those misunderstandings were cleared up with facts, uh, it made people see things through a slightly different lens. And this didn't happen overnight. This was numerous meetings, uh, but it also made, more, it made people more comfortable over a drink to talk about some of the difficult uh, uh, conversations and issues that the firm was facing. And, uh, and that also started to build trust. So little by little, empathy started to build and trust started to build. And then the conversations took on a much more lively, uh, lively pace. And I say pace because they sort of slowly moved in the beginning. And as people began to trust each other, they, the pace started to move a little more quickly. Uh, and we could get to potential solutions and potential uh, new ideas faster as the trust and the empathy started to build within the group. 
You know, it's interesting what you say about drinks because I remember the first time I really became aware of this, that I really noticed it. I, I, it was one of the very, very early meetings I was running maybe two decades ago. And and I had run a meeting where we were trying to air a whole bunch of issues and I thought that we had sort of resolved them and that people were um, – you know, seemed to be forthright and, and open. And then we took a break. We literally didn't go to drinks. We literally stayed in the same room but we took a break and there was some food that was brought in and now we weren't quote unquote meeting. We were having lunch in the meeting room and I said – to one person, you know, how do you think it's going? And he said, oh, I don't think we're airing any of the issues we have to air. And I said, like, you know, like I thought to myself, why is he telling that to me now while we're having lunch in the same room, in the same seat he was in 10 minutes ago when he was part of the conversation but not bringing this up? And I think there's something about the formality and the informality and that if you could bring the, you know, if you could talk about the work in an informal way, people are much more forthright when they think we're having, than when they think we're having the formal conversation. You know, and it was interesting. Some of the more tense conversations we had were in the early days, um, you know, with the drinks before dinner or the drinks after dinner, when people really started to dig a little deeper into an issue that we had talked about during the day. Uh, but maybe we sort of scratched the surface, but in a more relaxed environment, the deep, the, the really deep digging really started to take place. It was, it was interesting to watch. And it was great for me because, you know, I could sit back and, and observe the dynamic uh, and start to think about things that I could do to improve the dynamic instead of necessarily having to feel as though I needed to resolve all these challenges on my own. It's great. Um, uh, how did this, how did this, um, uh you know, how did this come to fruition? So how did this work end up helping you get to this, you know, to these results that I described at the beginning where you're going from losing $30 million to, to you know, $30 million loss to $140 million profit? Well, good results always require a, a lot of variables kind of falling into line. Uh, but as far as getting people pointed in the right direction, uh, this dynamic and appointing the right leaders at the beginning uh, really started to get people pointed in the right direction because to get the kind of results that we, we did get, you, you needed to do some difficult things. There was a tremendous amount of complex, complexity in the organization, and we needed to, to get rid of that complexity. Uh, we had four separate companies once we had separated from PIMCO, but we had 15 operating legal entities that needed to be compressed. And uh, you needed cooperation to be able to do those things. You could not effectively improve the results if you had resistance of every point of change. And so the leadership and the executive committee uh, created a clear path to accept some of the tough decisions that had to be made to, to eliminate the complexity in the organization. And it, it lent itself into, you know, a good year, the first year where we, if you, nobody had really put all the pieces together and added it up as one P&L, uh, honestly, people thought that their, their operating entities were, were making money. And uh, everybody was quite surprised to see that when you put the pieces together that we were losing $30 million. In fact, it was quite shocking for the operating entities. Uh, there was one operating entity that was really supporting the other three. Uh, so it became clear on paper and on a factual basis that things had to be done. So that supported cooperation. And then we pretty aggressively moved to make the changes and eliminate uh, complexity with the support of the executive committee and with, with support of leadership. And uh, the next three years uh, continue to be record-breaking years for the United States. And I believe the last year I retired at the end of 2015, 
uh, before I left, uh, I left at the end of the year, the results indicated through November that we were on track for, to meet the objectives of the year, which were a substantial increase from the year before and would be the fourth consecutive record year for the United States. It's amazing. And, it's, and it feels like from what you're saying that a tremendous amount of it was get the data, get the right people in the room, have conversations where you require a level of openness and honesty and that you create the environment to have that level of, of openness and honesty and that you put the difficult issues on the table that are getting in the way and that you make them sort of unavoidable. In fact, the undiscussables become unavoidable. And, and then you have those conversations and then people emerge, you know, both, both edified and, and having learned more, but also realizing that the pain of having these difficult conversations are um, in effect much better than the pain of trying to avoid having them and then taking the loss. So it's, it's like so many times I look at organizations, Brian, and I see that, you know, the everybody individually and quietly will talk to me what the problems are, but they're not having those conversations together. And so they get stuck in the problems. And I think what the, what you're describing is the courage that you showed to say, I'm going to take these conversations that are happening and I'm going to commit to the culture that we say we have and to the, um, to the values that we talk about um, wanting to see. I'm going to commit to them in a real way where I'm hiring and firing based on them. And then I'm going to take the conversations that people are having quietly in the sidelines and I'm going to bring them to the front and I'm going to shine some light on them and I'm going to bring the right people in the room to have the conversations that we need to have and move them forward. So that takes a lot of courage, I want to say. And, and, it's, and it seems very simple and straightforward, but it's following through on decisions based on commitment to values and based on the data that leads you to make tough decisions about who to hire and who to fire and, and you know, kind of how to reorg in a simple way and how to get people to work together. And not to belabor this, but another subtle uh, change that, that I think made a difference is we really paid a lot of attention to the core values, the respect, integrity, passion, and excellence. And there was a lot of work done around those core values. But most importantly, there was enforcement of those core values. Where I had control and bad behavior was evident uh, and, and change needed to be made, we made it. And in the earlier days, we made it aggressively so that it would serve as a uh, sort of a proof statement that we're, we're really taking these values seriously. And in a smaller organization, depending on the leadership of that organization, different styles of behavior were allowed to, to coexist. When you got into the bigger one organization and the core values had been expressed so loudly, it was much more challenging to demonstrate bad behavior. And, and also you knew that if you did demonstrate bad behavior, uh, you're probably not going to stay around for too long. That, that was very helpful as well. Brian, thank you for sharing this story with listeners. Thank you for sharing your, you know, the the sort of both accomplishments and the, you know, and I, I know because we were together that it wasn't always easy that you, you know, that it, that you sweat through some of this and, you know, that's the nature of it. And it's, it's your demonstration of, of your sort of integrity and respect and passion that kind of, you know, you're living those values that I don't even know if you know how important it is and was to the organization that they can look at you and that they see someone who exhibits passion and respect and and integrity and and that 
you know, it's not just hiring and firing based on that, but it's really living the values yourself as the leader that sets the tone that people realize they have to live up to it. So, so thank you for doing that. And thank you for sharing your wisdom here on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Peter. I'll just take one more second to say uh, the work that we did together was very, very critical to the success. One of the keys that you taught me was you had to stop and think. I have had, I've always had a tendency to, to react uh, through my gut, through my instinct. And through the work with you, uh, you got me to stop in critical instances and in some cases either react and, and do something that I hadn't thought through or in some cases don't do something that I naturally would have done. Uh, you were very, very helpful and helping me think through uh, the proper approaches to this, and I'll, I'll be forever grateful for your help. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Peter. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.